Hey there, my name is Daniel. Welcome to our little podcast. Today's guest is Philip Mantle, who is a book author and UFO researcher for more than 30 years. His great books have been published in nine countries so far and are available in five different languages. Today he's here with me and we talk about UFOs, aliens and of course his work as a UFO researcher. And we also talk about his latest book, UFO Landings UK. And guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a like and a subscription and share this podcast with all your friends. And for those of you who speak and understand German, please check out our German podcast project Sagenhaft und Sonderbar also. I will leave a link in the description. You can show some love by leaving a like, a comment or a subscription there also. And if you have a story that you want to share with us, please send us an email. The link is also in the description. Philip, we had a talk before, but our video was deleted by a vicious cyber attack. Not too long ago. I'm glad you took the time to talk to me again. And if you don't mind, give us a little insight in who is Philip Mantle and what the hell is he doing? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, I was just an ordinary schoolboy like everybody else. Went to a normal school. Um, I was born and raised in a, uh, a coal mining community. My father worked down the coal mine all his life. Um, but one thing I had different from my friends, you know, we had some interests similar, you know, we like football, you know, we like comic books, like the movies. But the one thing growing up that, that was, I was different was that I liked all things paranormal. And I would read whatever I could lay my hands on, watch the occasional TV show when they were a, a, a broadcast. And um, for example, literally right over the road from where I lived when I was about 14 uh, was my best friend's grandmother. And she used to go to a, a, a local town. I live in West Yorkshire in the north of England, <clears throat> just outside of the city of Leeds. And she went to the Spiritualist Church. So I, I went along with it a couple of times, uh, found it fascinating, but didn't necessarily agree with everything. Um, I'm also the type of chap who would always ask questions and always raise my hand and, you know, that used to get me in trouble at school at times because some of the things they would teach knew that this is what happened and I would raise my hand and say, well, what about this or what about that? So the same applied in the field of the paranormal. And then I was also interested in astronomy and I remember... Again, I was around, you know, my teenage years, I read a, a, a book on astronomy that had one chapter in it, Daniel, about UFOs, basically dismissing them, which I, I found rather odd, but that, that lit the fuse. So uh, I left school um, with no qualifications, and um, that was 1974, you know, took on a couple of jobs, you know, but I always had this get out of jail card. My interest in these subjects was growing. And then 
in the summer of, uh, sorry, in the winter of 1978, over into 1979, I worked in what was your country, West Germany, as it was at the time. Um, I worked there for about four months. Couldn't speak a word <laughs> of the language. How is it, Daniel, when you go to a foreign country and you can't speak the language, the first two things you learn is how to order a beer and how to swear. <laughs> you know, but what I did while I was there, I, I phoned my mum and said, can you send me some books to read, mum? Because even though we had a TV, I couldn't understand any of it, really. So she sent me a box of books and they were all on UFOs. So I read the lot. When I returned home in 1979, then my interest in the subject had grown. We then had the Spielberg movie Close Encounters come out. I saw that. And my aunt, who lived around the corner, she used to buy a local newspaper. It was actually published in Leeds. And she brought the paper around one evening, and there in it was a small advertisement. That Sunday, coming up, was the formation of what was called the Yorkshire UFO Society. It was their first meeting. So I caught the bus, went into Leeds. I didn't drive at that point, found this place. There were about 20 or 30 people there. And it had been uh, formed by two brothers, Mark and Graham Birdsell. And they'd obviously been involved in UFO research already for a few years. Um, and they put on a presentation. And Daniel, that was it. I was hooked. I felt, you know, I don't know if you've ever had that feeling. You're just feeling you're in the right place at the right time. They also had a massive table of books, which was great because they were hard to find anyway. I paid my I paid my membership fee, which I think then was about two pounds for the whole year, you know. And and I that's that's how it all began, and, and I went from there. You have been to Germany, you told me before. That's great. And um, yeah, it all started with books. Do you remember who wrote those books? Um, no, I don't. I, I mean, uh, books at that point where we live were, uh, on UFOs were hard to come by. I think my mother got them on the market, you know, all secondhand paperbacks. Uh, you know, I think it was fantastic. And um, I, didn't, I didn't keep them. I didn't bring them back home with it because I couldn't fit them in my luggage to bring them home. So they got left behind in Germany somewhere, oh. you know. Uh, but it, you know, I, I don't, it, it increased my, my passion for the subject. When I came home, I wanted to know more. I didn't really know what I was going to do. And then I saw the movie of Close Encounters. I thought, oh, and then the formation of the Yorkshire UFO Society all seemed to be like fate almost all the pieces falling at the right time. And, and when I joined the Yorkshire UFO Society, not only was it the right place, it was the right time, Daniel, because as we went over into the 1980s, we then started to get a lot of reports coming in. So if you wanted to be an investigator, there wasn't a better time. And that's exactly what, by this time, what I wanted to do. I mean, we used to have meetings every month on a Sunday and you could just sit there and listen to the latest news. You didn't have to get involved, but that wasn't good enough for me. I wanted to know more. My, my hand was still going up like it used to do at school. I was <laughs> reading everything I could and, and I was off and running. Did you sign the books back then? But uh, because if so, I will 
look out on the Hamburg flea market. <laughs> no, no, they were all paperbacks. They came in in a in like a, a big shoebox, a cardboard shoebox. My mother wrapped them in brown paper and sent them to me. I, I just asked for books. I didn't ask for anything specific. It was my mother's decision to buy these books, not not mine. Because I used to read novels, I would read science fiction, I would read horror stories. I just wanted to sit down on an evening and be able to read something because there was no where, where we lived that I could buy English books. And to my amazement, they were all on UFOs, which was great, you know, and and and, and um, God rest her, she's no longer with us, is my mum, but she, you know, she helped help her with the interest in the subject. So she guessed that you might like them. Well, she already knew of my interest and I'd already, you know, read a couple of books and I talked to my mother a, a little bit about it. Mm -hmm. um, although she wasn't an educated lady, she, she, she was, she, she still had a good, a good brain on her. And, um, and so she must have realized that my son's getting in. She may have just come across them by coincidence and thought they were cheap. You know, I never, <laughs> they may have been cheaper than some of the other books. I don't know, but I'm forever grateful that they, they arrived when they did. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and it, you know, it's, it lit the spark even further. Yeah. Everything happens to the right time. Mm. Everything has its time. And that was your time. Yeah. Get those books. Yeah. I mean, had I not gone to work in West Germany at that time, that would probably never happen. Of course. So it's it's Germany's fault that I'm involved. <laughs> Guilty. That's good. Let's make a big step forward. Um, of course, you heard about the congressional UFO hearing in the US. Yes. Any deeper thoughts on this one? Well, I mean, you know, we have to look at it on the positive side, because it's the first hearings in 50 years. Um so that, that, let's take the positives out of it. Uh, the one thing, I, I mean, I watched the, the hearing when it was broadcast. Um, you didn't learn an awful lot from it, but it's, it's a start. So I don't think we should be too negative. However, um, you kept hearing the word, you know, defense, defense. So I'm, 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 if I put my cynical head on, Are they trying to just raise some more money for the defense budget in, in the United States? You know, the trillions that they already spend perhaps is not enough. They want even more. But that's been a bit cynical. The, you know, they've made certain um, statements and we'll see how those progress. See if they back up those claims, those statements, because, you know, there is a, a growing movement that won't let their local representatives off the hook. And, and if they don't deliver, you know, there will be an outcry from the UFO community in the United States. And that will lead to them pestering their own, you know, representatives and so on. And uh, but let, let's 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 hope for the best. Yeah. Um, what will come out of it? Who knows? Yeah. For now, it's great that it happened. Yes. And that's a good thing. Well, what, what it does, Daniel, of course, it, it certainly in, in, in the States and here, it puts um, the UFO subject into the mainstream. Yeah. You know, and this all began with the New York Times article back in, in December 2017, of course. And, uh, and, it, and it's all stemmed from that. 
So let's hope it continues in that vein, you know, and I speak to journalists fairly regularly. I think there will always be the one that likes the sensational stories and things like that, but that's their job, you know. But there are many others that saying, well, you know what, I know, what about this, Philip? What about that? They're trying to take it more serious. Perhaps like they did sort of mid-1990s was similar because that's when people like Dr. John Mack stepped out of the, out of the, the shadows um, and went on and said, there is something to this phenomenon. And I met John several times, you know, a lovely guy. Um, so when you have a Harvard professor and a Pulitzer Prize winning writer saying, hold on a minute, you know, I'm staking my reputation here. There is something that, that we're missing. Then you've got, to, you've got to take notice. He wasn't some lunatic. And so now we have a similar thing, but it's not, it's not a person. It's, it's actually the US authorities are standing up and saying, well, we, we think there may be something to this, but we're just not sure what it is. So we're going to look into it uh, and we'll wait and see what happens. I'm guessing you mentioned Avi Loeb when you when you said the the Harvard professor, and I'm very excited and I can't wait to see what he will discover with this Galileo project. The only thing about the Galileo project, as far as I'm aware, it's not all scientists that are, that are involved in it. There are yeah. some UFO researchers as well, so that may let him down somewhat. Um, but again, you know, you have a a, a, a well respected you know, physicists, astrophysicists saying that it's, again, I think there is extraterrestrial life and we may be able to detect it and it may well be, you know, here or there or whatever. And of course, we've just had the, the first um, images from the James Webb Space yeah. Telescope, yeah. which were absolutely amazing. Doesn't They don't surprise me because I'd already been told how, how large the, the visible universe was, but to see it in picture format, yeah. Uh, was amazing yeah and um so so that indirectly may help as well are you familiar with the sky 360 program no i'm not no okay it's too much to put it in here but i will send you some information on this one it's actually the same in uh, a little bit smaller that's okay I, i will send you some information about this one um yeah You told me you were already interested in astronomy as a kid. Mm. And um, NASA is showing us great and sometimes even strange picture, pictures from Mars. For example, that, let's call it door, that looked as if it was machined into, a wall, into the wall of rock. Another picture showed us a rock that looked almost like a, a femur of a big animal. Exciting, isn't it? It is. I mean, I go back to when... Um... Uh, the Mariner missions to Mars when they landed on Mars in the 70s. And at the time, there was a lot of speculation and, and, and even disagreement that the experiments that the Mariner lander, uh, that they actually found life, but microbial life, for, yeah. albeit. And, and I've, always, I've always believed that uh, life on Mars did exist. I don't think it's there now. I don't think it was anything too sophisticated either. I think some of these images that, that we see now, you know, natural formations of rocks and riverbeds, they can be eroded to look like a whole host of things, but they're not. They are, at the end of the day, just just rock. It's like you look into the cloud, you can see faces in them, yeah. you know, but there's no faces there. 
So it's the same type of thing. However, if you go back to when Bill Clinton was the president of the United States, they, NASA had uncovered a, a meteorite from Mars. I don't know if it was at the North Pole or the South Pole, but they recovered this, this um, meteorite and it had a name. And Bill Clinton almost said it proved life existed elsewhere because in this rock was a, a what we call a microfossil. So it was fossilized bacteria. But bacteria is life regardless. Now we have a, had a, uh, an astronomer called Sir Fred Oyle. And I read his book many, many years ago. It's called The Intelligent Universe. And that's exactly what, what, what he was talking about, Sir Fred, was these, you know, meteorites from all over the place. When you examine them, there were these very tiny little imprints in them. And they were actually fossilized bacteria. So life, in his opinion, is part and parcel of the universe. You know, as simple as that. Now, some of it will remain as bacterial life. Some of it will die out. However, some of it may advance as well, pretty much like you and I. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm confident that if we look at some of the features that we know about on Mars, then at some point on Mars, liquid water was present. And what we know on Earth, where there's water, there's life. It, it, it is a simple calculation. And I think the same would be no matter whether you were on Mars or any other planet, if you have liquid water and it's there long enough, you will have life. The water is now gone, so the life may have gone with it, but something was there. And I think, I think the only way we'll conclusively get anywhere with that, Dan, was if we actually send people, you know, manned. The, the, the various missions that they've had there and the rovers and what have you have done a fantastic job, but they haven't got the thing that they need which we all have, every one of us has, and that's curiosity. Yes. You know, you can't build that into a robot. So if you're standing on Mars and you look at something and it look, and then your curiosity clicks in, you think, hang on a minute, I'll just, I'll just go and have a look, and, and then hey, presto. So I don't think we'll conclusively prove it's, that life has existed and may even still exist, but it won't be anything like you or I. We shall see. I have the same opinion. As a musician, I would love them to find an instrument of some kind. That would be great. That would be great. And it would be great to know that ETs also love music, just like us. I talked to Eric von Däniken about this one. He used to play harmonica, just like me. And we talked about this subject. And he said, yeah, I think well, there well, is what, music. What did Spielberg use in his, in his movie, Close Encounters? He music. used lights and music. Yeah. You know, because music is also mathematical. And math, you know, math, 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 mathematics is universal. Two plus two will always equals four, no matter where we are in the universe. Uh, and music is also, you know, based on mathematics. So there you go. Why not? Of course. Let's talk a little bit about your book, UFO Landings UK. The title of the book is actually self-explanatory, but tell us what made you decide to write this book. It's very apt you ask this question, Daniel, and I'll explain why in a second. When I, as I told you, I joined this newly formed Yorkshire UFO Society. And in the 80s, we were very busy. Lots of sightings coming in. And I was in my local newspaper. And they ran my telephone number. This lady rang me 
Um, like I said, at that point in, in, in time, all, the old, whole area where I live all used to be mines. It was all coal mines. She lived just a few miles away in a small town called Normanton. It was a coal mining town. And she said, Philip, you won't believe me. You won't believe me. Well, try me. So she was called Mrs. Westerman. And myself and my colleague from UFOS, Mark Birdsell, went to interview her. She told us this story, she said, she lived in a terraced house with no houses opposite, and it was also a cul-de-sac, so there was no through road at the end. At the bottom of the road were some trees, a small stream and a hill with some electricity pylons on. So a lovely sunny day, and her children and their friends were playing outside in the street, playing a ball game. And it was just after lunch, because Mrs. Westerman was washing the dishes. One of the children rushes in and he says, Mom, Mom, there's an aeroplane crashed in the field. So she goes out and because it was an elevated house, she had to go up like six or seven steps to get in the front door. She could see out over this hill. She said, Philip, it, what, it wasn't an aeroplane. It was something on the ground that was shaped like a Mexican hat. So she got the kids, of which there were six, and she took them down, we went through the trees, down across the stream, and you lose sight of this hill at that point. And you come up the other side, and this hill used to, uh, it had a, this field, it had a, uh, a fence around it, and they stopped at the fence. This object was still there, but now there were three very tall men out in front of it, they had a, like a white boiler suit on. They didn't have an astronaut's helmet on. They had something covering their face. And two of them were waving something over the ground. One of the children tried to climb the fence. Mrs. Westerman held him back. And these three men walked to the rear of this thing. It lifted up completely silently, stopped in midair, and then shot off at an angle. And we interviewed Mrs. Westerman and her children. And, you know, they were completely bamboozled by it, Daniel. They had no idea what this was. Uh, she expected, because it's a busy little town, is Normanton. There's a big motorway called the M62, runs right past it. Thousands of cars an hour. She thought it'll be on the TV news tonight, this. Nothing. Nothing in the newspaper, you know. And what is curious, what is is nice about this case that what it did it proved to me Daniel that I wasn't wasting my time in this subject because pretty much all the things I'd read were in America or somewhere else this was this was five miles from where I lived this was in my own backyard um, Mrs Westerman's husband was a coal miner the children played the same ball game I played when I was their age these were the type of people I'd grown up with you know in this environment so we weren't allowed to use a name, couldn't take a photograph, didn't want any publicity. So you have two things that are either lying or telling the truth. And I couldn't find any reason why they would be lying. What is interesting is just before the COVID pandemic, I did an interview with somebody on a podcast, can't remember who it was. And I told them about this story but I forgot to use the lady's name. So a couple of weeks later, I got a, uh, an email from a lady in New Zealand. She says, hello, my name's so-and-so. So -so. 
I used to live in the town of Normanton when I was younger. What was the lady's name? So I said, I replied, I said, it's Mrs. Westerman. She says, my best friend when I lived in Normanton was called Westerman and I'm still in touch with her, Alaska. So she emailed her friend and her friend was one of those children I'd interviewed all those years ago. So she put me in touch with her and she says, I, I can remember it. And she, she gave me a statement. We had arranged to meet up, but then the pandemic came. So that was the end of that. Um, but literally just last week, uh, I'd done a, a TV show here that had gone out. And uh, a gentleman emailed me and he said, my partner, was one of those children at Normanton. Now I never mentioned Normanton on this TV show. It was all about Roswell. So I, he gave me his, the phone number and I rang her up. She was one of the children there, but she wasn't a relative of Mrs. Westerman. She was one of the children's friends. And she was eight years old at the time. And she told me the whole story. I spoke to her on the phone because she lives a long way from here now. And um, she remembered it like, like it was yesterday. And she, the, the young lady I spoke to in, in just before the pandemic, they were best friends. So I was able to give them the, each other's email and, and put them in touch. And hopefully they will have made contacts, you know, without any interference from me. So I'd been looking for these children for years. Obviously the, the lady I spoke to first, her name wasn't Westerman anymore because she got married. The other lady I spoke to wasn't called Westerman because she was just one of the children's friends and she doesn't live locally anyway. And I, I have on my, my notepad in front of me all the notes I was taking while I was speaking to her. Um, so I have reconfirmed that, that first landing case from all those years back by speaking to two of the children who are now grown up. And I, I found it astonishing, you know, and I, I, I I was forever thankful that they got in touch. That's a great story. And it's uh, very interesting when people see this stuff and people like this, especially. Well, that... Mrs. Westerman was extremely puzzled, not only by the sighting, but why apparently nobody else had seen it. Because she lived in, you know, it was a sunny day. Everybody's out and about. Like I said, there's a big motorway goes right past. It was a busy little town still is and, and I think at one point she even went and asked a couple of her neighbors so that puzzled her not you know almost as much as seeing the thing and um, I, I don't have any answers for that all I can say is I, I, I believe exactly what they say and then to have confirmation all these years later by two of the children now grown up um, and there were six of them so there's four others out there somewhere maybe I'll find them eventually you never know Uh, we shall see, but it's what it did. It, it confirmed that I wasn't wasting my time in UFO research, but it also then implanted in me an interest in these particular type of cases. So landing cases became like a, a, a private research project for me. I would just collect them and put them in a file, and then you know I'd add another one. The book itself, UFO Landings UK. I, I've been meaning to write it for, for several years now. And, but when, when the pandemic came, I, I had no excuse then, Daniel, because we couldn't go anywhere. So I sat down and, write, uh, and wrote it. 
And actually, if someone buys a copy, they'll see the publication dates two years ago. Um, because we also got interest from a TV company to do a documentary about it. So we were going to publish the book and the documentary at the same time, <laughs> but the pandemic came. So I decided to publish the book now and, and the, the TV documentary is done, but I don't know when they'll, they'll actually broadcast it. So that, that'll, that'll come later. Um, but, you know, it was just, you know, some of the, I forgot some of the cases I had, to be honest, Daniel. It's only when I'm pulling them out of my files and going through them again, thinking, oh boy, I'd forgotten about this one. And, you know, as many of the people as I could, I tried to interview myself as well. It wasn't possible because some of the cases were historical cases um, or they were, you know, we'd lost track of the witnesses and so on. But where I could, uh, I would always try and, and go physically and speak, speak to the individuals myself. And, um, and hey, presto, UFO landings is out and up and running. But it all began in reality, although I didn't know it at the time with that, that first landing case we investigated all those years back in Normanton in West Yorkshire. And uh, here we are today, come full circle. It's an interesting case. And um, it's strange, like you said, that nobody saw it besides her. Yeah. And and um, maybe she was somebody picked her out to witness this, and and nobody else reminds well, me. Well, she's not to... alone. She's not alone in this. You know, this is something that happens on a regular basis. Yeah, uh, it's almost if you, as if you have to be at that time and at that yeah. place to to see this uh, apparition or this UFO or whatever it may be. And um, they all saw it, you know, there were seven of them in total. And what, what is also interesting, they never called it a spaceship or, or aliens or spacemen. They just said these tall men and this thing, you know, this thing on the ground. Uh, I think one of the children still said this airplane. It wasn't an airplane, you know, because it would have been in pieces. <laughs> There's no landing strip on this little hill. Yeah. But uh, that was just, the, you know, the, the words flying saucer and aliens were not in their vocabulary. Uh, so that's why they stuck with this, this thing and these strange men. Um, and I, I found it fascinating because this didn't, you know, we're not, we're not talking about Roswell here. We're not talking about Socorro, New Mexico. We're talking about a little mining town in West Yorkshire, a few miles from where I live. And, and uh, that to me makes it all, all the more real. Uh, I know it doesn't in, in, you know, in the wider world, but to me it does. Same, same uh, with me. Uh, when, when people like, like this woman and their children talk about it, it makes it more believable. To yeah, me. I, you know, I'm sat in her front, front room, in her living room, talking to her and the children. I used to have like a, a little kit bag that I always took with me. And in there was a tape recorder, notepad, camera and lenses and batteries. And I took my camera out and my God, take a look on her face, you know, cause she hadn't done her hair, <laughs> you know. So you no know way you're taking my photographs. So I think I better put that back in my bag, you know. 
But that reminded me of people I lived with. It was the same kind of, you know, people. I, I was born and raised in a, a similar community. So, you know, it, it, it all made sense to me. It really did. Before I had my UFO sighting in, back in 1996, I saw a triangle with a little light in the middle and it moved very fast and very strange in a C-shape or a zigzag shape. And within, within a second, uh, within the blink of an eye, it was from there to there and I don't know, crazy maneuvers. But if it wasn't for that, I don't think I would sit here today and talk about this stuff. I wouldn't yeah. leave it myself. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I hadn't, I'd seen something prior to this, but it, this just confirmed it anyway. I hadn't seen anything prior to my involvement mm. in the subject. It was only once I got involved that, that we managed to, to view something, um, you know, out, out of the ordinary. But this, 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 this type of event, when it happens, it just confirms. People say, oh, you're wasting your time, you're daft, you're crazy. Well, no, I'm not wasting my time. I, fe I felt honoured to sit in this lady's living room and, and listen to what she was telling me, as I have done with many other people as well. I, you know, I really do feel honoured. Uh, sadly, she's no longer with us, which I just found out, you know, a few years back. Um, but the children are still there. So I've got two of them. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll find the other four at some point. You never know. Mm. UFO Landings UK. I will link your book in the description of course, so people can buy it on Amazon, I guess, and where where else can you buy it? Mainly on Amazon, just, you know, start with there. There may well be other places that stock it, but Amazon is always your best bet. Mm -hmm. We've been talking a lot about dreams on the podcast lately, and we discussed if dreams could be a way to look behind the curtains of our so-called reality. And... A lot of people say that lucid dreaming could be a way to travel through time or jump back and forth between dimensions or alternative realities or parallel universes. And maybe there's UFOs and aliens somewhere. Any deeper thoughts on this one? Well, uh, I mean, a gentleman who, who, who was regularly on television in the States is a chap called Professor Michio Kaku. Yeah. And I met him um, some years back when he was doing a, a, a book promotion here in the UK. He had a book, I believe it was called Hyperspace. And I went to interview him at his hotel. And it was an astrophysicist. And we talked about space travel and the fact that if we go in linear travel from A to B, it's a complete waste of time because it's the distances are too far. And um, and we have we have limit, we know we have limits as as, as our species do. But he told me about the ways you could bend space and therefore you could hop from one place to another in an instant. And we also even talked about other dimensions, which he was convinced of, and, and even time travel. And he said the only thing that was lacking for time travel was a power source. We'd need a power source equal to that of our own sun. But the, the you know, the the theories for it to, to, to attempt it is, is certainly there. Now, of course, you know, interstellar travel is, is a hot topic. Again, we mentioned before the James Webb um, telescopes, space telescopes photos shows you the immensity of, of, of the universe. 
And, and the, the thing is, we, sh we should add, that's the visible universe. So there is more of it out there we, that we're just not aware of. And it, I, think, I think the visible universe, uh, Daniel, is something like 40 plus billion light years across, you know, two trillion galaxies. Within each galaxy, zillions of stars and planets. I mean, it's, it's mind boggling. So I think we have to look at other, other subjects, other, other ways to think about the universe rather than like we do, I get in my car and I, dr I drive to, to work, you know. That is out of the window, I think, as far as space travel is concerned. So we have to look at bending space and time maybe, or, you know, going through other dimensions and finding a way and, and these were all the things that Professor Kaku was talking to me about back in the 1990s. And I think, you know, that those UFO researchers that believe we are being visited by aliens are coming round to the fact that, well, if, if, you, if, you, look at you, if you look at UFO research to begin with, uh, Daniel, if you go back to the 1950s, the contactee era said these were the Space Brothers coming to help us and they will come from first of all they said the dark side of the moon well we sent us probe around the moon there is nothing there then they said oh well no it's venus we then learned that the atmosphere of venus is extremely toxic uh, and then they said oh neptune or whatever you know and then it became further and further out into the universe which is all so you know our 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 thoughts about where the these things may have come from as developed and, and they would realize that the, we can't come from one planet to another just traveling in a straight line. It would take zillions of years. So we have to look at other ways and, and, and of which you, some of which you've mentioned there. For example, probably the most famous UFO case in the UK is the events that happened at Rendlesham Forest in December 1980. I won't go into it all, but basically there were on the first night of the incidents there, the forest is bordered, was bordered by two Air Force bases. They were American Air Force bases, and they saw something descending to the forest. They sent three uh, security. One stayed with the truck. The other two, Jim Pennison and John Burroughs, went into the forest, and they saw this thing. Very peculiar thing, though. John Burroughs said it was about the size of a large car, it was triangular shaped. It was either on the ground or perhaps, you know, even on some legs. He said he walked around it, he touched it, it had red lights on top, blue lights underneath, it was warm. And it had these markings on the side. And he says that took him about 45 minutes. However, his colleague who was standing just a few meters away said, all I could see was these strange lights. Now, John, John Burroughs has gone on to write his own book about his encounter. And I have no doubt both gentlemen did come across something extremely bizarre. But John believes it's not aliens. It, it is actually a, a, a vehicle from our future. It is us. It's time travel. So even some of the witnesses, I know John's probably out on his own there, but I dare say there will be others, but are thinking along those lines now. But 
Because if you think about it, if you go back to Roswell, we've just gone past the 75th anniversary. You look at the, the creatures that were allegedly found there, well, they don't look too different from you and I, yeah. Daniel, you know? So maybe they weren't from outer space, you know? Maybe, well, you know, if you put time travel in there, it, it's, it, I'm not saying they were, I'm just saying it's another way of looking at it. Because we, we realize that if, if UFOs are from another planet, then that, that it's highly unlikely that they're coming from point A to point B. It's just too far and would take too long. So we have to look at other ways or other theories of what UFOs may be. Maybe nothing to do with aliens at all. Hence, you have time travel thrown into the equation and other, lots of other things as well. You know, there's lots of theories, but it's just a different way of looking at it. Why not? I I often think about the possibility of grace. We all, we often talk about grace and all we see is grace. And I often think about the possibility of grace or us from the future, as you as you stated. And maybe we changed into this because of I don't know the light changed, the, the pressure changed, everything changed yeah. around us because we destroyed the nature, we destroyed the planet. And they're here to, to tell us, don't do this. It's yeah. Good. Well, again, if, if we look at certain abductees, mm -hmm. and again, it's not all of them, it's a number of them, they will tell you the story about when they were taken on board these UFOs. They were shown pictures, films, visions of ecological disaster in Earth's future, not on their own planet, but here on Earth. This is what's going to happen to you in the future if you don't mend your ways. And I've worked with um, uh, American uh, abductee Calvin Parker, who with Charles Hickson was abducted in Pascagoula back in 1973. Calvin told me, he said, he didn't like to talk about it because he calls it a curse. He said, Philip, I was shown horrible things, both past, present and future. And it talked about, you know, nuclear war or nuclear disaster and, and you know, and he said, it's a curse. I don't, I didn't want to see these things. And it was shown to him while on board the UFO, but they were here on earth. And, uh, you know, my first ever book, Daniel, was called Without Consent. Mm -hmm. It's all about abduction accounts and missing time cases here in the UK. I interviewed a young man, we'll just call him John, uh, uh, in Wales and, and he was only a young fella you know with long hair like rock music he was walking home one night when this incident happened to him and again they, they said to him they showed him on a big screen you know pictures of, of earth being destroyed and, and what have you and it had a very profound effect on him uh, and it was just an ordinary young fella much like I was when I was his age you know I had long hair and denims and like rock music you know and um so he was, an, he was another example. But one of my colleagues, who's no longer in the subject, um, he took a different look at this. He said, could we as humans all be psychic in some form or another, but some have more psychic abilities than others. Like some are better football players, like some are better artists, you know? And these are, these are messages being sent from our future back in time are telling us we've got to change our ways otherwise this is what we're going to let the, let ourselves in for and of course if 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 different dimensions are a reality then we can prevent 
these things from happening in one or more of those dimensions. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's mind boggling. I know, but it's, it's all little different ways of looking at the same subject. Yes. So when people say, Oh, do you believe, do you believe in UFOs? It's not really that simple. You know, I always say yes, but, but it's, it's not just black and white. I wish it was that simple. It would be, yeah. it would be great. <laughs> yeah. I, I always say yes too, but it's, it's so much more than just some freaking creatures coming from outer space. Yes, it is. It's much more complicated. It's much more complicated. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sometimes not easy to explain. Yes. Um, well, I'll, I'll, get, I'll give you another example. Nothing to do with UFOs. My, my mom, she's no longer with us, but originally when she was uh, a youngster, she was born in Northern Ireland. And her and her mother and father and family lived in a quite a rural part of the country. And when she was about 11 years old, she used to play um, down by the stream they had on the little farm they lived on. And she said to me, son, one day I went down to the stream and I met a fairy, a little female fairy, pretty clothes, wings. And she spoke to me. And she said, if you drink from this little bottle, you'll never have an accident. So my mother took this bottle and drank it. And she, you know, as I grew up, I asked her about this story. She told my children, you know, her grandchildren the story. And I, 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 somebody said to me, well, do you believe it? Do you believe your mother? I said, yes. Do you believe in fairies? No. But I believe my mum. Doesn't necessarily mean I believe in fairies. In other, way, in other words, there may be different ways of looking at what my mum experienced that day. But I believe it. She told the truth as she knew it. Just like Mrs. Westerman, the children, told me the truth about what they'd seen that day. It wasn't a fairy. It was this strange thing with these three tall men outside of it, you know? And now we have cases where people become contactees and they see, like in the case of a young man that told us his story in the podcast, who told us he saw Santa Claus or people see owls or deers or the guy... I talked uh, to, he said he's, when he was a kid, he saw penguins stand around his bed. Watching well, him. I'll give you another example. Uh, in my book, Without Consent, probably the best well-known abduction case in the UK is involved a policeman who was on duty in his patrol car at the time. He's called Alan Godfrey. And uh, he, he was on patrol in a town on the borders between West Yorkshire and Lancashire town called Todmorden. Uh, it was November uh, 1980. Now, Alan was on a, a night shift on his own in his patrol car. He'd actually been looking for some cows that had gone missing. And just before he finished his shift, he saw an officer on foot patrol, so he stopped and had a chat. So I'm going to drive up and have one last look for these cows, and that's me finished. So he's driving up the main streets about 5.45, in the morning, so it's a.m. And he's just going to turn off and go to the police station when he sees this light up ahead. You know, what's that? So he, he doesn't turn off, he carries on going. As he gets closer to it, 
there's an object blocking the road, literally blocking the road. It's shaped like a, a child's spinning top. It's dark. It's got a bank of windows or panels across the top. But the bottom half is rotating. So Alan stopped the patrol car. He tried to radio through to the police station, couldn't get through. So he had a clipboard in his car. I took out the clipboard and began to draw this thing. Next thing he can remember, he's several hundred meters down the road, now driving the patrol car. No recollection of starting it up again. Turned around, this thing has gone. Now where it had been on the road, it had been raining through the night, there was a dry patch. He got back to the police station, he was late. And when he got, when he got, uh, when he changed out of his uniform, he noticed that his police boot was split underneath, which it hadn't been the night before. And he had a mark on the inside of his ankle. Cutting a long story short, Alan reported the incident. And uh, about six months later, he linked up with UFO researchers by this time. And they hired two professional psychiatrists to put Alan under hypnosis and they filmed it. Now I've seen the film. Alan talks about seeing, a, a, first of all, a, a creature we call human. It's an old man with a little white beard and a school cap on in a robe. He even had a name, called him Joseph. He then saw these ugly looking creatures that had um, heads shaped like an old fashioned light bulb. But, but the strange thing, as you were mentioning, Alan's a very down to earth gentleman. He said, there's a dog, there's a black dog. A lot of people forget to mention that when they talk about Alan's case, but he says oh, there's a black dog. That's quite interesting because Preston Dennett, I have to mention him again, but he also talked about uh, UFO case where a woman named Dolly was abducted and she was transported to the planet, so she claims, and she saw different species of aliens. Human-like aliens, she saw insectoids, she, she saw reptiloids, and she saw um, aliens, they looked like dogs or cats. That's interesting, you mentioned it. So yeah. everything fits into the other somehow. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre. But of course, we know through folklore and, 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 and what have you that black dogs are well known. I mean, the Hound of the Baskervilles, a famous Sherlock Holmes story, although it's fiction, it's the phantom dog. You know, phantom dogs are, you know, are well known in, in paranormal circles. But here we have an abductee, probably the most famous case of its kind in the UK, a police officer on patrol at the time and, and during his hypnosis, he says, I saw a black dog. And make of it what you will. It is extremely strange. Um, I believe Alan, Alan himself will say, Philip, I saw that thing on the road and had I had a, a, you know, a brick or a stone, I could have thrown it at it and it would have gone clunk. As for the hypnosis, he said, make of it what you will. I, I don't know. And um, I, you know, I've, seen, I've seen the video of, of his hypnosis session uh, and it, it is very intriguing. It really is. But it's another bizarre aspect of, of the UFO phenomenon. It really is. 
this makes me want to translate the story I told you about before from the young guy who talked to us. This this makes me want to translate it to into English and send it to you because this guy, this young guy, who told us that he was a con he's a contactee, a lifelong contactee, and he saw strange creatures like penguins, like Santa Claus and Yiriada, and later on, it they more and more turned into grace. They appeared as grace back later when he was, when he was an adult. But when he was, as he, when he was a kid, as long as he was a kid, this, this, these uh, creatures were penguins and stuff like that. Well, let's, let's, let's think about this. I think just this week, it has been, I think the 25th anniversary since the movie Contact yes. came out with Jodie Foster. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look, when she goes into that machine and she, off she goes into space, through another dimension, through a wormhole, and she finally lands at whichever star system she's at. I forget the name of it now. The beings appear to her as her father, who's deceased. Yes. And it's more or less say if we appeared in our natural form, you wouldn't be able to understand us. So this is like a, you know, we'll appear like this so you can understand, you, you can better understand. Is, is that something like what, what we're talking about with some of the abductees? I, yes. I don't know. I'm, you know, but that always stands out. I know that's a science fiction film uh, and so on, but it always sticks in my memory when people say, well, I, it looked like this or it looked like that. You know, it's almost as if it's making it familiar for you. So it doesn't scare the bejesus out of you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's just something that sticks in my mind, Daniel. Yeah, that's crazy. The guy. I was talking about he also told us that he later on when he was an adult he had a, a meeting with his friends and in in, a, in the house of some other friend and yada yada and long story short they saw a dog they did they did something with the Ouija board and stuff like this and suddenly one of the girls was screaming because in the backyard a big a really big dog stood in the backyard and just looked into the the window of the door and stared at the at the at, at the guys and they stared at the dog and someone said who's that dog whose dog is this and the guy from the house said i don't know i've never seen this dog before yeah well there you go and and it's really mind blowing right now that you told that you told me the story with the dog and press then it told me a story about alien that appears as dogs and this guy from germany told me about his his um event with the dog that's yeah. really strange and great at the same time <laughs> well there you go so it's just one of those things that, that we have I mean, and you know trying to make sense of it is not always the easiest thing so i think sometimes it's best just to say this is what they reported i've no reason to disbelieve them make of it what you will you know um, yeah. come to your own conclusion that's the way i look at it yeah that's right i was very skeptical when it came to abductions but that changed that changed because of stuff like that you tell me this this guy tells me this and this guy tells me that and everything fits perfectly in together well i'm the same i wasn't skeptical i just didn't know an awful lot about them so how my first book 
like I said, it's called Without Consent. It actually came about, we were, my colleague who I co-authored the book with is a chap called Carl Nagatis. Carl was a, a Fleet Street journalist uh, of some distinction and he set up on his own. And Carl and I were actually commissioned in the 1990s to um, write a treatment for a TV documentary about abductions in the UK. So I set about researching it with Carl and in the end they, they dropped the project. So we'd done all this research uh, and I said, well, it'd make a great book. So Carl says, yeah. So we, we, we went uh, you know, on even further. And of course, in the early nineties, while we're doing this, there's no internet, there's no email. And um, so I would literally throw my stuff in the car my wife would say, what time are you going to be home? I said, I don't even know what time I'm going to get there. And I went from one end of the country to the other, interviewing these abductees in person. Again, not all of them, but a lot of them. And it just convinced me that there was a genuine phenomena here. I'm not going to say it's aliens from whatever, because what we did at the end of it, we asked the abductees themselves, Daniel, it's okay, it's you that's had these experiences, not me. What do you think they were? Some said definitely aliens, others thought it was some kind of spiritual experience, others didn't have a clue, you know, so even, even the abductees didn't know. Now in, in, in my book, UFO Landings UK, I, 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 I didn't intend to put an abduction case in there, but there's a couple because they're also landings as well. And one is, is a lady from uh, lives near Manchester called Linda Jones. And it's a long story, so I won't go into it. But when I asked Linda, what was your experience like? She was with her children at the time. The one word she used, Daniel, and, and it, 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 at the time it brought hairs up on the back of my neck. She said it was biblical. Oh. And I thought, that was the last thing I was expecting. I mean, Linda's a lovely, lovely lady. I've met her several times and her, and her family, you know, her husband and children. That was the last thing I, I expected Linda to say, you know. I thought she was going to say it was aliens or something, you know, or, or Doctor Who or, you know, but biblical. So that is in, in, in my new book as well. And, and it, you know, it is emphasized that word, biblical. I have to look up this one. Sounds yes, yes, it is. It's fascinating. Many people claim that they are sure that ETs are not here to harm us. President Dennett says this all the time. People say ETs are not here to harm us. What's your opinion on this one? Do you think that ETs want to help us and teach us like many people claim? Or There used, there used to be two schools of thought if you believe that aliens are ETs in the first place. Yes. So sort of the two pioneers at the time, one got more recognition than the other. The first one was Bud Hopkins from New York. Mm. And then you had Dr. David Jacobs from Temple University. Bud was of the opinion that they were here to help and assist or whatever. But Dr. Jacobs was of the opposite. He believes that they have ill intent and they're not here to do us any favors whatsoever. And they both were good friends and colleagues. In fact, when Bud passed away, his whole archive of material was donated to Dr. Jacobs. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Jacobs has it 
in storage. Um, that's how good friends they were, but they were completely opposite when it came to what their conclusions were. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I've corresponded with Dr. Jacobs. I've never met him. I've spoke to him on, on Skype. I met Bud several times, Bud even came and stayed with me. That's what I say to people, Daniel, look at the data, look at the information and draw your own conclusions. You don't necessarily have to listen. Well, who am I to tell you? You know, I, I'm just an ordinary guy from a, from a coal mining community. Um, so, but have a look, keep an open mind and decide for yourselves. You I, know? Don't think, I don't think you're just an ordinary guy. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I I mean, one of the cases that I was working on for, for the book Without Consent, uh, Bud actually assisted me with it. It was a lady who had a, a series of events. So it wasn't just a one-off and they were ongoing. And I would transcribe my interviews with her and I would mail them in the post, no email, mail them in the post to Bud. And he would come back and say, ask her this question and that question and this question. And, and I did, uh, and I was very grateful for his assistance. But what to make of it all, you know, I, I, re I really don't know. I'll, I'll give you a, one example that made me think. I, I published two books by a Romanian scientist. He's called Dr. Dan Farkas. His first book is UFOs Over Romania, a great book. But at the end, he mentions his own conclusion, but only in, you know, a small way. So I said, right. Let's have a book all about your conclusion on UFOs. And it's called Hyper-Civilizations. Basically, what Dr. Farkas believes is that, yes, we are being visited by beings from another world. But they are not a few thousand years in front of us. Not even tens of thousands of years in front of us. They are perhaps millions and millions of years in front of us. They are so advanced, Daniel, that they are there right in front of our face and we as humans are too stupid on, on the evolutionary scale to notice and he gives an example he says you you take a television put it in an ant's nest the ants will know it's there they'll crawl all over it the soldier ants may even try and attack it but never ever in a zillion years will be able to figure out where it come from what it's made of what its purpose is you know and it will be an ongoing thing because it's still there. And, and, and that's what Dr. Farkas thinks about the UFO phenomenon. We are too stupid on the, on the intergalactic evolutionary scale to comprehend what's, what's happening. And one of the abductees in my first book, Without Consent, um, called John Day, uh, John's encounter happened in the 70s in Avery in Essex. And I tracked him down many years later and managed to get an interview with him. And at the end of it, I said to John, all right, John, what, you know, what happened to you that day? Is this nuts and bolts, aliens from wherever, you know? He says, Philip, not only do I not have the words in my vocabulary, we as a species, don't have them. He says, the best way I can describe the experience to you, he says, if you went to a film set, you know, Elstree or Pinewood or whatever they make them in Hollywood, they build a set. 
it's made of wood. You know, you go up, you touch it, knock on it, it's 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 real. But when you look round the back of it, it's not real, is it? It's all an illusion. And he says, that's the best way I can describe what happened to us. And that was a very profound comment to me, Daniel, and I still don't necessarily understand it today, but it, it's kind of like what Dr. Farkas was saying, in a way, I think, you know, and I was, it, it, you know, I've never met John again. Um, I, I wish I could, I would still like to have said, well, explain, to, explain that to me again, would you please, John, you know, but it, it was very profound. And it's like, you know, I used to be a conference organizer and we had, um, we had a, a conference all about abductions. And our keynote speaker was Whitley Strieber, author of Communion. Mm. Uh, it was the first time he'd lectured on the subject in the UK and he, he put on a terrific presentation. And then we did a Q&A, question and answers. One person said, are we getting any closer to the truth, Whitley? And Whitley says, we're learning to ask better questions. And I'll never forgot that. He's forgotten it. I've spoken to him about it and he, he can't remember saying that. But he said, we're learning to ask better questions. And, I, and it's always stuck there. And I thought, how right he is. So the more we learn about the subject, Daniel, we learn to then ask better questions. We don't necessarily find the answers, but we then you know, learn to ask better questions. And I've, so those two things have always stayed with me, plus many other things as well, of course. But yeah. they were sort of very profound things that, that were said, to, uh, and, and, and hopefully will always stick in my head. Mm. That's great. That's, that's great thoughts. Great thoughts. Made me think. Do you have any any knowledge about cattle mutilations? In, in your, is there something in your book about? about no, no, it's not something I've ever. Uh, got involved in. I looked into it initially because we had uh, Linda Moulton Howe, uh, who, who began her career in the sort of paranormal field with cattle mutilations when she was a, a, a TV producer. And we had her come lecture for us. And, and for, it, it, for me, I don't, I don't think there's anything to it as far as this subject is concerned. Mm -hmm. um, so I left it at that. You know, it, 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 it's like, you know, we have crop circles, it's still in the UK. When they first hit the headlines in the 1980s, I went down to Wiltshire to look at some of these crop circles and I measured them and I took photographs of them, but I wasn't impressed. And I may be wrong, I'm, I'm not saying I, I'm, I'm right, I just, it wasn't for me. That, 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 so, and the same was with, with cattle mutilation. So I'd have to say, I know virtually nothing about them whatsoever. So, you know, that's it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical when it comes to this subject. The same with crop circles. I, I, this topic gives me nothing. I don't know. It's, it's, could be, might be, yada yada. I don't know, but it's not my cup of tea. So I, I've left them alone. I'll let others argue about that. <laughs> same here. There are reports from South America. I think I'm not recall where exactly that was but there are reports from south america where ufos shot beams of light at people mm. some have mm. even died i heard it is said that some have even died well if, if you if you want to look at um cases that are bizarre 
then South America uh, and Brazil in particular is a place to go. It really is. You know, again, I published a book uh, by my colleague Tiago Tichetti from Brazil. Yeah. Um, UFO contacts in Brazil, and it is full of them. It is absolutely full of them, of the most bizarre incidents. So what this tells me is this, if you also then look at cases from around the world, country by country, you will see that there is a cultural influence on the way the phenomena is reported. Here in the UK, we have a mixture of all kinds of things. Where, you know, like our the people that live here come from all over the world, you know. Um, you look at Russia, some of the landing cases there, well, the aliens are these great big things, pretty much like the Russians want to portray themselves as the big Russian bear. I'm big, tough and strong. Well, the aliens are the same. You know, in, in, um, in Latin America, they are a little bit different. In Scandinavia, they're a little bit different. In, in South America, they're very different. But if you take out the visuals from these things, Daniel, the parameters that make up these encounters are the same no matter where you go around the world. So there is a cultural influence on the phenomena. That's why some skeptics of the extraterrestrial hypothesis look at these um, uh, experiences, we'll call them. Uh, they look at it from a folklore perspective because the way stories are told around the world, we all, we, can all, we, all, we all have versions of the same story, but it's, it's influenced by our culture. Santa Claus is one example. You know, the, the red and white Santa Claus we have now comes from a Pepsi Cola advertisement. Whereas before he used to wear skins, you know, furs. So it, the way we perceive Santa Claus is influenced by our culture. And, and there'll be different stories of Cinderella and, you know, uh, same story, but slightly different. As, uh, and it's the same with, with the encounters, the UFO encounters, same types of stories, but they are influenced culturally. Why that is, you know, that, that's a whole different argument, but it, it is a fact. If you want to take time to look at that, it, it, it is a fact. Mm. That's interesting. I always thought that, UFOs in general, when you look at pictures in all the books from the 70s or 60s or 50s, 50s UFOs always look like you would expect them to look like in the 50s or in the 70s, a little bit like our furniture looked in the 70s, F futuristic and they... Culture. Yeah. Culture, yeah. Yeah, but uh, well, let's go back because again, we've just got just gone by the, the 75th anniversary of Kenneth Arnold. Mm -hmm. Kenneth Arnold didn't see flying saucers. They were boomerang shaped. They were delta. No wings, no fuselage, no cockpit, but they were delta. It's only when he landed and spoke to a journalist, the journalist said to him, how did these things move through the sky? And he says, like skipping a saucer on a pond. And hey presto, flying saucers were born but he didn't see a, a saucer. Now, had Kenneth Arnold said, like skipping a stone on a pond, like I'm sure you've done as a kid or at the sea, then flying saucers would never have existed. Wouldn't have called them flying stones, would you? Maybe. But that's just the way the culture, and then so everybody's then seeing flying saucers. 
but we know from Kenneth Arnold he didn't actually, that's not what he reported. Mm. So it shows you how, how culture, popular culture especially, influences the way these things are reported. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. I always wondered why they look like, like they look 70s, <laughs> 80s, well, 90s. Yeah, but look now, do we get anything like that reported now? Somebody said to me on an interview, I think it was last year, and I couldn't answer it. And they said, where have all the Spice Brothers gone? And I had no idea. I had no answer for that question because they were the in thing in the 1950s, you know, and they're gone. And then it moved on into the 60s. We had Betty and Barney Hill. Yes. With the first abductions. Betty and Barney did not see the little grey guys. I, I corresponded with Betty. I didn't know that, you know, I just corresponded with her. She called him the, you know, the UFO guys. The UFO men. They were little men with big eyes and they wore a uniform. Not dislike, you know, a military. They weren't the little grey guys. They came along later. So where the hell did they come from? You know, and then in the 70s, we had Pascagoula, the creatures that Charlie and Calvin saw are like nothing that anyone else has ever reported. Then we had Calvin, sorry, then we had Travis Walton, big case, still hotly debated now, but, but Travis saw two different types of creatures, things that were pretty similar to, to uh, the hills and others that were human, but they had, you know, these goldfish balls on their head. Uh, but now, it's, you know, what's in vogue now, Daniel? The tic-tac. So it's tic-tac yeah. here, tic-tac there in the 90s, 80s and 90s, it was the triangles. What what year did you see the flying triangle? It was a triangle in the 90s, 1996, there, yeah. There you go, there you go. But now, every, all everybody wants to talk about is tic-tacs and the US government. So you can see how the UFO subject has evolved since its inception with Kenneth Arnold. We'll take that as a starting point, even though it's not. That's when the term flying saucer came into our vocabulary. And you can see how it's evolved down the decades and will continue to do so. Uh, I mean, 50 years time, it was something completely different, Daniel. You, you, I'll be certainly, I won't be here, you might be, but it was something completely different. The UFO subject is very different now from the day when I started in 1980. I don't think I'm here in 50 years, but I know what you're referring to. Um, you know what I mean. It's, um, yeah, like 10 years back, and sometimes even now, there was ball of lights. People saw ball of mm. lights. That, yeah. That part yeah. Of but but now, MUFON have just announced that they're no, no longer going to investigate sightings of orbs, of strange lights. Orbs. You orbs, yeah. Balls of light. Call them what you will, but you know, they're not going to investigate them. But why? Because they think it's a waste of time, because they're not aliens. <laughs> I don't know. You'd have to ask Mufon, but that's come out in the last few weeks. Now, when it comes to strange lights, you know, that's what got, got me my, my first investigations. We had areas in and around what's called the Yorkshire Dales National Park in North Yorkshire. Lots of these strange lights. They're still appearing in Hestalen in central Norway. Yes. Uh, you have um, the Marfa lights in Texas. You have the Min Min lights in Australia. You know, so, you know, to call them just to 
saying we're not going to investigate them, but they, they might have come to the conclusion that these things are natural formations or they're plasmas or whatever. Therefore, they're of no interest because they're not aliens. Mm -hmm. We got some fireballs or light balls in the Mekong in Thailand. I, I think. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. Everywhere, yeah. Everywhere. And again, around the world, it's the same thing, just a different name. Talking about lights, and that's the last thing I want to talk about today, since I have you here. Since we talked about lights, what do you think? Is there a connection between the UFO phenomenon and the paranormal? Or, I don't know, maybe, let's say, ghosts and uh, haunted? I would say yes. I, I, would, I would hazard a guess that they're all different sides of the same coin. The same Because, kind? Yeah, it's a coin. You know, I, it's the same sides, yeah. you know, different sides of the same coin. I, I give you a coin. It's got, it's got a picture on one side, but you turn it over and it's completely different, but it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, hmm. I'll give you an example why. We had this area in North Yorkshire that had a lot of UFO sightings. It was around a little village called Carlton. It's just a nothing little place, very nice, very quaint. Above it was the moors. And there's nothing on them of any interest. But in and around these hills and, and moors, we had a lot of UFO sightings on which we concentrated. But then when we started going to speak to people, I'll, get, I'll give you our first clue. A gentleman wrote to us from a small village. And for whatever reason, we decided to go and speak to him. It was about an hour and a half's drive. When we got there, what we thought was a village was only about eight houses <laughs> and we got his letter but none of the houses had a number on them so we didn't know which one was his house so we knocked on the first door and said excuse me can you tell me where Mr so-and-so lives and this lady and I still remember her she said have you come about the ghost dog <laughs> no no so she told us about these two red lights that would float along and they were the eyes of the ghost dog but of course all they were seeing were these strange lights so we you know we went to mr so-and-so's house and he told us about these strange lights now we happened to have a um um a member of our society who was a police officer in the area he witnessed the phenomenon himself but he also went on to tell us for example Him and his partner got called out to a burglary one night. And he turns up at this couple's house. And he said, okay, what's been stolen? And he said, well, uh, nothing. And he said, well, what do you mean nothing? He said, well, we've been out for the evening. And when we've come in, lots of our ornaments and pictures have just been turned upside down. Oh, there's no windows broken. The door was locked. No, for, you know, no, there's no sign of somebody breaking in. Just all these strange things. It's just, you know, like the vase turned upside down, pictured on the wall, turned upside down and other things. And he said, well, it's not burglary, is it? <laughs> you know, nothing's been stolen. He said, what, what am I supposed to do? They then got called out to uh, another, you know, this is not at the same time, but it's in the same area. 
And uh, he said there was a fire. So he said, we got there before the fire brigade. And you can see it through the window, there's, there's an illumination. So he says, what we're taught to do is we kick the front door in and we go down on our hands and knees because the heat rises. And then you proceed, if possible, on your hands and knees. And he said, I went into this house on my hands and knees and there is a man in the living room lying flat on his back and there is a flame coming out of his torso. Nowhere else. Like a real flame or? Oh, a real flame. But he, he was not burning, like? It, nothing else was on fire. There's just this flame coming out. He's dead. There's a flame coming out of his torso. He, and he said, spontaneous human combustion. Uh, okay, spontaneous human combustion. Okay, he, so he, he, like, he died. He was, he was dead, yeah. Dead. Now, then what we did in this area, we, we, we housed a caravan on the moors for a week. And we did some local publicity and we encouraged people to come and report their sightings to us. And they did. One of the unusual ones was an elderly couple. Now, at this point in time, Daniel, in this area, there was no major supermarket. So they would go once a fortnight. So once every two weeks, they would take a, a, a drive out to a, a supermarket. It was about an hour away. They'd always go the same route, same day. They're coming back one night from the supermarket. Well, look, they built a factory in that field. Sat back in the field, there is this shape, object shaped like that with all these windows, all glowing, all lit up. And they thought, it's in, whatever they're making, they're in full production. Of course, two weeks later, they went on the same trip. And guess what? There's no factory there. And um, we sat them down in this caravan with a map. And they showed us the route on which they go. So we actually drove that route in daylight and had a look and get there is no factory there. So what we realized was, yes, these strange lights were being seen in these areas. And I saw them myself. But also all these other weird and wonderful things in the same areas. Now, I, I published a book by a, back, a, a, a gentleman called Trey Hudson, James Trey Hudson. It's called the Meadow Project. And basically, you probably heard of the Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah, of course. Trey and his colleagues are paranormal researchers. And they've been looking at this area in the south of the United States. They haven't given the location away. And what they would do on the map, they'll put over the top of the map uh, a clear piece of what we call acetate, plastic. And they would mark on it instances where strange creatures have been seen. Take that off, put another piece of clear plastic where UFOs have been seen. Take that off for whatever, paranormal happenings. Then they put all the plastic pieces together. And guess what? Both the strange creatures and the hauntings and the UFO sightings were all grouped in the same general areas. Same Different sides of the same coin. Now it makes sense. But we only, found, we only found that out by mistake, knocking on somebody's door, asking for where this gentleman lived, and they said, come about the ghost dog. And we then realized that there were other things happening that we hadn't asked. We just come, you had a UFO sighting, yeah, what time was it? What did you see? You know, and we were gone. So once we learned that, we then learned to say, well, you know, anything else been seen around here? You know, and it's amazing what you find out.
It really is. So when you say, are the paranormal and UFOs linked? I would say definitely. But uh, some people would disagree with that. But, but then that's fine. I have heard a lot about people that saw UFO, uh, UFO shortly after or sometimes even while they had a haunted experience of some kind or a ghost encounter view like this. Um, yeah. Many people saw blue lights coming from somewhere while they had while they saw a ghost or something mm, like that absolutely always like we'll, we'll call it the blue lady but when you when you boil it down all they've seen is this strange blue light mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the culture takes over and it's not just a blue light oh it must be the blue lady but what they actually saw was just a blue light yeah i told you about calvin parker and charlie hickson their, their close encounter blue lights blue light was the first thing that they saw you know, was these blue lights coming from behind them? I remember I talked, I also talked to Calvin Parker not too long ago, and he couldn't talk that good because of his tongue. And uh, he told me about the blue lights. I was, yeah, I was impressed by his story. He's a great guy, by the way. He's he is guy. indeed. He is indeed. So, you know, I would say, yes, there are connections, um, but others would disagree, of course. Um, but that's fine. You know, no problem. Philip, I have so many more questions, but <laughs> we have to have a cut somewhere. So let's end this here today for today. And um, yeah, maybe we can meet again and have another talk. Why not, Daniel? So it's been a great pleasure talking to you in lovely Bavaria. Yeah, Bavaria in Franconia. Well, it's, it's nothing like Bavaria where I live. This used to be an industrial town. So it's nothing like Bavaria, so I'm very envious. <laughs>